0: We're in Acts chapter 5, and uh, just as a quick reminder, kind of put this all in perspective of uh, the larger story of what's going on here, um, you had Peter and, and John, the apostles, who were preaching in the, in the temple, and they end up getting arrested, and then they're threatened, and then they're set free, uh, and so then they immediately go to their friends, and they meet with their friends, and they're telling them, you know, here's what happened, here's what they said, they said, don't talk about this, um, and, and they go, to, go on continuing to preach the gospel. Um, and, and when they leave, we, we start to see this time in the church where people are selling stuff and sharing things and just a, a crazy unity amongst the believers in the early church. And, uh, some are even taking their land, their home and stuff like that and selling it and, and then giving it to the church and it was being shared amongst everyone. So no one had any need, uh, among that comes uh, Ananias and Sapphira and, and they show up and they see this and they think, yeah, let's do that too. Uh, and they say, we're going to sell this land, and we're going to give everything. And, and whether they meant to or not, we don't know. They do plan to lie. Uh, ultimately, they do lie. Uh, in the end, they both end up dying, uh, being killed. And that just is terrifying to the other believers as they see that. That's where we stopped last week. Uh, Sometimes it can feel a little choppy, as you understand. Uh, Luke's writing this, and it's kind of, you know, here's what happened, and here's what happened, and oh yeah, here's what happened. Uh, And so it kind of jumps a little bit here. Uh, In our text today, it's not like the next day. Some time has passed, and and we're going to see that the apostles find themselves again standing before the council, having to give a defense for, for what they're doing. And we're going to look at in two sections. The first one is a long, it's an extended section, verses 12 through 39. And then we'll read just the last few, just so you know, the second section is not as long as the first. Uh, and, and we'll do that. So, starting in verse 12, chapter 5. <clears throat> i got to find my spot. All right. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick in the streets, and they laid them on cots and mats, and that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all were were with, with him. Uh, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles, put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and, and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel And they sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came to them and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple, and they're teaching the people. And then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high, high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witness to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged. They wanted to kill them, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thuidus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of, of, of the census and drew away many of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. It says they took their advice there. Uh, The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Good Shepherd. Uh, teach us to hear your voice in the scriptures and to follow you wherever you might lead us. Help us to understand and to believe and obey your loving and powerful word. Yes, Lord, plant your word so deep in our hearts that our lives of faith grow to be like mighty oaks who do not sway in the wind of popular opinion or threats to our safety. Enlighten our minds to receive your word with joy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So that's a long section, uh, maybe the longest we've ever read, <clears throat> and uh, you might notice that first section, verses 12 through 16, is actually its own little section. This was a short period of time uh, where the ministry was fruitful, where the struggles were very little, just a, an easy little period of, of ministry, and you notice in the scriptures it's just this little bitty thing, you know, they could have just said everything went great, you, you know, yada yada. Uh, <clears throat> In it, though, we we see that the apostles are are held in this high esteem by the people. Uh, That's the general population. And a big reason for that, a big reason the people were so uh, pleased with the apostles at this point is that the Holy Spirit was working powerfully through them to heal people. Uh, You can imagine just how popular Travis would be in this town if, if people learned that you could bring anyone you want to him, and and Travis just touched them, and suddenly they're healed of cancer. They're healed healed of uh, whatever other diseases you might you might have. He would be the most popular person in town, even more popular than Bill Snyder for a while. Uh, <clears throat> and and that's kind of the way this was going. It's important that we understand, though, that this unique gift of of healing was was for that time period. It was it was through the apostles, in particular, to this actual era in the church history. Uh, that's not to say God doesn't still heal people. Uh, even in miraculous ways. Uh, we can pray to God for that. We can ask God to do that. But there are no living apostles today. And no one has that particular gift of healing. Uh, which is why Travis and no one else on this planet can walk around and just heal people like the apostles were doing. Uh, during this time though, it was an encouraging time in ministry. We learned there, it says, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. And we've already seen some huge numbers of believers. Uh, even in the first four, four chapters up to this point. Uh, and it tells us, by that, we also see that the healing that was going on was, was deeper than just physical. Uh, these are people that are they're coming to faith in Christ, and they're being healed in a spiritual way. Uh, so those peaceful times don't last long. In verses 17 and 18, uh, we learn that the Sadducees are filled with jealousy. Uh, these are the men who are in control, the people with the power. Uh, and they're jealous because the, the apostles' ministry was going so great. Um, their jealousy wasn't something noble or any, any level, any idea of God's honor, or anything like that, it was simply driven by this fear that if this continues, we're going to lose our position of power. We're going to lose our influence. Uh, and, and so as we, we kind of see this, there's some repetitive nature, it seems like, in Acts. Like, weren't they just standing before the, the, the council? Well, yeah. Uh, keep in mind, the first time it was, it was Peter and it was John uh, who were arrested. This time, all the apostles get arrested, and they get to spend some time in prison. Uh, you might notice that word public prison, that's distinct from last time. Uh, the public prison was, was in a place where you could see who's in prison. It, it had with it the, the punishment for the people in prison, but they also wanted everyone else to know. When you walk by, oh, that person's in prison. And, and it would help you understand, you know what, if, if we do what they do, we're going to get the same punishment. And so part of it was so they could see if we follow Christ like they're following Christ, uh, that's where we could end up. During the night, God sends an angel. And this angel sets them free. Uh, We don't know the details of it. Somehow the angel opens the door. Uh, Maybe something amazing and the door disappeared. Maybe he just took the keys off the jailer and opened the door. Uh, We don't know. Uh, But try to imagine this for a moment. This is one of those things in scripture you kind of just skip right over. You don't think much about. Uh, But let's say you and I, we're out preaching the gospel and we find ourselves in jail uh, because we're preaching this message that we've been warned, do not teach. Um, and God sends a way of escape, right? This angel shows up. You can imagine that relief of, whew, okay, we're out. We're free. We're, we're good. And, and really, if I'm with the apostles, I'm going to be the guy in the corner saying, okay, we're free. Let's get out of town. Let's, let's just go. We've pushed our luck at this point. Let's get out of here. Um, you know, Because not only have we preached the gospel against their command, uh, but now we're escaped prisoners as well. This is not a good place to be. Um, and that's kind of where you, where you get, except for there's this angel there, right? The angel. Um, angel literally means messenger. Um, messenger that brings messengers uh, from God. And, and this angel has a command, um, a message for the apostles. You see it there in verse 20? Go stand in the temple. I'm sure I'd be amazed at the angel, but you've got to be kidding me. Go stand in the temple. And it gets even worse. Not only are they supposed to go stand in the temple, but they're to speak to all the people the words of this life. So go keep preaching like you were before. Remember the thing that you arrested yesterday? Go do that. Um, I can kind of just imagine myself, and, and maybe this is a, you know, a severe weakness in me, but um, just being there thinking, guys, God hates us. Let's go get killed. Um, what else do you expect to happen? You want us to walk back in the temple and do the very same thing? And, and I think, honestly, when I read this, that's why I'm so absolutely amazed at their obedience to God. They just do it. Um, over and over again we see this. They're told what to do, and, and they do it. And we don't know what they're feeling inside, internal fears, but, but we see them respond and go do it. And I, I know I've mentioned this before, but but really... Why do we today put forth so much effort explaining why we don't have to follow God's word? You know, something like it really doesn't mean what it sounds like it says. Um, or that's just an old-fashioned idea, let's move on from that. Uh, sometimes we get, you know, really noble about the way we do this. Uh, you know, if we do that, we might think we earned our salvation, so let's not do that. Um, you know, that's the, the noble, that's how we do that, uh, particularly as Reformed people. Uh, It it kind of reminds me of of high school. I don't know. I went to a public school, and there was always that one guy uh, in my class somewhere who would spend hours figuring out some way to cheat hours just you know it was really creative too uh, usually like it was impressive on some level you know that you know he's writing on his sock in the class before and these tiny words and he's going to cross his leg and pull it up and and there's something like that or or he'd go to class early like the, the period before when it's empty and he'd write real lightly in pencil the answers on the test on the desk uh, so they're waiting for him when he gets there uh, or they create this program for their ti whatever they were called uh, that would you just put the numbers in him and do it and and I would always watch this, and I'd be like, wow, that's really creative. And, but then it would kind of hit me and think, wouldn't it have just been simpler to learn the ten questions? Um, you know, I spent 20 minutes studying. You spent like four hours planning this. And, and I think, you know, in, in the same way, I, I think of this. Wouldn't it be easier for us as followers of Christ, um, wouldn't we do better if, if our first instinct was just, okay, follow the word of God? You know? If our first question was, okay, how can I obey that? Rather than, why don't I have to, you know, why can't I disobey that? Uh, the apostles do obey. They go to the temple and they continue to speak the words of life. Um, apparently this phrase, the life, was a term that early Christianity or referred to Christianity in the early church. The way is one we'll see later. There's a number of terms that, at this point, no one's even referred to them as Christians. Uh, we'll see that, I think, Chapter 11. Uh, and, and so then in the, in the morning, the, the council does gather, and, and remember, there's no phones. Sometimes we see this, and it just seems ridiculous, but there's no phones, and so the only way information was gathered is someone went, went and checked on it. Uh, it'd be like if I asked you what's going on in the nursery right now, you'd have to get up, go down there, and come back and report. It was sort of like that. Uh, and so they send for the prisoners, and they learn, you know what? We don't have any prisoners. Uh, and eventually, someone shows up, and they tell, and they tell them, uh, you know those, those people we arrested in the temple preaching yesterday? Yeah, they're in the temple preaching today. And and so you can imagine just how angry they are. Um, They do go get the apostles. It specifies they are not by force. This is not because they are just so hospitable that they want to welcome them uh, to the court, but rather they're afraid that if we go and take them by force, everyone is going to stone us. Um, And then in verse 28, they do come before the council, and the council reminds them, we commanded you not to teach in the name of Jesus. And they also tell them, because of you, now Jerusalem is filled with this teaching. It's almost a compliment, isn't it? Uh, I mean, what do you say to that? Well, yeah, that was the plan. You know, Jesus gave us this really great commission thing, and that's what we're here to do. Um, their response is, is better than that, though. Um, but, you know, but first, even before we look at there, can you imagine how awesome that would be to be accused of that? Listen, you guys filled Manhattan with this teaching about Jesus. Or you filled K-State or Fort Riley or or whatever it might be, you know, uh, with true and and proper teaching about Jesus. How great that would be to be accused of that. Yeah, we did. Uh, You know, like, that'd be so wonderful. Um, But look at their response. You know, look back at our text. The apostles' response is basically answering this question, why did you disobey our command To not speak to Jesus about anyone. This is what they're answering. And in verse 29, they they have this famous phrase at this point in history. We must obey God rather than man. That's not a bad life motto right there. Uh, In fact, that's a great life motto. Fantastic life motto. We must obey God rather than man. But let's be careful that we really understand this. Statement Because too often I hear people quote this and then grossly misapply it to their life. We think, yeah, I'm supposed to obey God instead of man, and so I'm not going to obey man. And we get that part done really good, but then we forget the obey God part. We kind of wrongly translate it to say something like, we must obey our hearts and not man. Or we must obey just our natural desires and not man. or, Or some version of, you know, we must obey ourselves and not God. Somehow the obey God part gets left out when we apply this. Uh, a sort of be true to yourself, you know, follow your heart. And, and the problem is we hear them and we're like, yeah, that makes good sense. Let's do that. Uh, no, it doesn't. That does not make good sense at all. Um, so let me make this so very clear. If you're going to disobey the authorities in your life, government, parents, elders, bosses, whoever it might be, it had better be for one reason and one reason reason only. That you are obeying the only higher authority in your life, which is God. Not your heart, not what you want to do, but God. So let that actual statement sink into your memory. We must obey God rather than man. We, we obey not to earn our salvation, but Because we bow our entire existence at the feet of our Lord, who is Jesus Christ, who is our eternal King. You see, in our day and age, we could learn a great deal if we are careful here to include ourselves in that last section, you know, or that that portion that says, rather than man, me too. I should be included in that. Obey God, not the counsel. Obey God, not my own desires. And, And as I say this, let me remind you, we, you know, will you fail? Yes, at times, maybe often you will fail. Um, Will we find forgiveness in the arms of Christ in these moments? Yes, Christ comforts us. Uh, But let us fail in our attempts to obey rather than failing to even attempt to obey our Lord. Now, they go on to speak boldly about who Jesus is to the council. Uh, These are some tough apostles. You're in here for preaching about Jesus. How do we respond? Let's preach about Jesus. Um, they're either really foolish or really bold because of who they know Christ is. Uh, and they explain his exalted status, that he is sitting at the right hand of God, which is a place of authority, uh, God the Father. They refer to Jesus as a leader and a savior, and their point here is uh, is, is that the council is not their leader, that the council is not their savior, Jesus is. <clears throat> and they explain that Jesus gives repentance to Israel. Um, there is a distinction here, you and, and I, uh, when we present the gospel, we can offer repentance, right? I can tell you to repent, to come to Christ. Uh, we can invite people to it, but, but here we see that Jesus actually gives repentance. It's his to give. Uh, and, and with it, forgiveness of sin. In a very real sense, then, they are explaining to the council that they, too, the council, <coughs> are invited to repent and trust in Jesus for their salvation. Now, in, in verse 32, it mentions two witnesses. Uh, you keep in mind, you remember what a witness is. A witness is, uh, witnesses don't need to know everything. They just need to know something. Tell us what you do know. Um, share what they know to be true. In John 9, 925, remember Jesus heals a blind man, and, and the blind man essentially witnesses to him, and I realize that's kind of ironic that a blind man witnesses. Um, but he's, he's asked about Jesus, and his answer says, uh, whether he's a sinner, I, I don't know that. Uh, one thing I do know, though, is I was blind and now I see. He's a witness, not because he knows everything about Jesus, but because he knows one thing about Jesus and can say that. Uh, and so there's two witnesses mentioned here, and the first one is, is, is men and women. You, you and I are witnesses. We can tell you what we know about Christ, what we know about the gospel, what we know about scripture. Not everything, but we can tell you what we know. Um, I can tell you what I know to be true of Christianity. I can tell you about my life. I can tell you earlier in life, Uh, just lacking meaning. Uh, I can tell you that I thought Christianity was absolutely whack and for really weak people. Um, And and then Jesus changed my views. Uh, He gave me faith, uh, gave me a love for Christ, gave me a a life that had meaning and purpose, and I can explain that to you. You don't have to agree with me, but I can explain that. And the second witness here is the Holy Spirit. Uh, These two witnesses are not equal. Okay? The Holy Spirit is much more powerful witness than you and I, and that should be an encouragement to us, uh, because when we are witnessing, the Holy Spirit might be witnessing also, and, and speaking to these people in a way that absolutely changes them that you and I just can't. It says here uh, that the Holy Spirit was given to the, the obedient. That's kind of one of those things that gets confusing, because we like to put everything in some sort of order. Really, that's another way of saying that, um, that God indwells his people with the Holy Spirit, his people. Uh, and, and so how does the council respond to all this, right? They're sitting back, they're angry, but, but now they're like, okay, that makes sense. See you all later. Uh, no, they're mad. They're terribly angry. They do not respond good at all. They're enraged with anger and they want to kill them. Anger, bitterness, wanting to kill people. I don't know if you know this. Those are not fruits of the spirit, not at all. Um, they just aren't. And so the council really just hates them. And, and it's not because they're obnoxious jerks. All along this, I mean, there's some reason to be impressed at just how respectful the apostles really are throughout this whole process. Uh, they really hate them because of what they believe and the threat that this Jesus they are presenting is to their life. Uh, so something to learn there, if people are going to hate you in this life, uh, make it because you bow at the feet of Jesus. Because you believe, because you follow Christ, because you listen to his word and believe it, not because you're a jerk. That's not the same thing as persecution. Um, So before they figure out how they're going to kill the apostles, because that has got to be going through their minds at this point, uh, this man named Gamiel, and I don't honestly know how to pronounce his name. Uh, Gamiel, though, he speaks up. He is... uh, He's on the council. You see, remember, most of this council is Sadducees, the people who don't believe in the resurrection. He's a Pharisee. Um, he does believe in the resurrection, not necessarily of Jesus. Uh, but he's calm. We see that he's held in honor, and both groups really respect him. Uh, people try to tell me that's, that's like Ronald Reagan, you know. Uh, both groups really respect him. I don't know if that's true, but <clears throat> anyway, uh, he was a rabbi, a teacher, and, and we're going to learn later that this man is the teacher of, of Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, so you can see that <clears throat> he really is a, a big deal in this, this culture, and remind, he reminds them, really, of these, these two recent examples. And, and from his perspective, he's saying, guys, like, don't make a big deal out of this. We've seen this before, um, you know, and he's saying, you know, after these people have died, their, their followers just kind of dissolve and disappear. Uh, the first example is this theodist that he mentions. Uh, not much is known about him at all, and I think that kind of proves his point. Um, not much is known about him in the history books. Uh, and, and the second example is, is Judas the Galilean, this is not the same, betraying Jesus. Uh, and Judas, this Judas, led a revolt when a new governor came in and tried to raise taxes. Uh, you know, we always revolt tax raising. Uh, and he did too. Uh, this is about 30 years before this, uh, but his point is, is there were a bunch of people following him and they were all ready to take over the world and as soon as he died, everyone was like, you know what, never mind, let's just, let's go back to fishing or whatever we're doing. Uh, but people would remember this. This was still in their mind. And and he gives these examples as a way of saying, listen, the advice I'm going to give you right now, take it. Like, this is what's going to happen or could happen. Verses 38 and 39, he shares this wisdom. Uh, He says, if this is made up by these men and Jesus is not the Messiah, it will fail and his followers will disappear. Why bother with it? Um, But he also says, if this is by God, if Jesus really is the Messiah you're not going to be able to stop it anyway, and you might be working against God. Uh, his hand, you know, hands off is his advice, essentially. And, and we can see this, and we're thankful for it, but it's not the only way to handle a, a controversy. We're going to see uh, later even, Paul's going to deal with some, some wolves in the church who are teaching false things, and he's going to handle it very different. Um, his advice here, it's commendable on some level, uh, but you might notice he's not looking for the truth. He's not really wanting to understand it. Um, What he shows here more or less is political wisdom. You know, here's how we handle this politically. And praise God for that, uh, because this is, uh, you know, his position in this Jewish culture, at this time in history, in this place in in Jewish culture. Really, God uses that to preserve his servants as they go about preaching the gospel and and doing the Great Commission. Uh, Verse 39 says that they take his advice, and my thought is kind of they do, um, let's read the last few verses and see what happens. I'll start verse 39. We'll go to 42 It says, so they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is the Jesus is Jesus. Um, and so they received a beating, and that's why I say kind of. You know, we don't know how much of a beating they received. Uh, there are some things we do know. 40 is the most anyone's allowed to receive. Typically, though, they only got 39. And, and the reason is, is that the beatings worked like this. Um, they would take their shirt off, and they'd hit them twice on the back with this, this leather thing with three straps on it, and that would hurt. And then they'd turn around and, and do it to their chest as well. Uh, that counts as three, not one. That's good. Uh, they repeat it 13 times, and 13 times 3, you do the math, 39. Uh, that's why no one ever got their 40th lash. I didn't go with the multiples of three. Now, I've never in my entire life <clears throat> felt like I might get beat for speaking about Jesus. Verbally insulted, yes. Thought weak or foolish, absolutely. But I never thought, okay, if I say this, they're going to get whips and just beat me. Ever. Uh, I think that's why I'm just so impressed when I look at this I'm kind of jealous and glad I'm not uh, that they take these beatings and then they just carry on with the plan rejoicing you know they even go back to the temple like you just got beat for being in there don't go in there, don't preach, they go right back in there Um, and it's because Christ is the Messiah, they know that it's worth it to them I think it's, it's fair, though, as we see this, to ask ourselves this question, what would it take to silence us? You know, what would keep you quiet? How uncomfortable would someone have to make your life to keep you from speaking about Jesus? Because the, the truth is, the gospel in Christ is a threat to people today. At the most basic level, it's a threat to people's pride. See, there's this refusal to bow to anyone. And, and, and that's why general spirituality, people aren't threatened by that. You can talk all day. It's great. You can use some of it. You can reject some of it. Uh, but, you know, you can stay on the throne yourself, and so it's not a threat to anyone. But when we cling to Jesus as our Savior, <clears throat> we also must bow to him as our Lord. And, and when we're professing, you know, Christ is my Savior, we're saying he's, he's my king. I submit to him. Our natural sinful pride is not okay with that. That's why it's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that makes us to have faith in Jesus Christ. And and so here's the deal. Even though no one's going to give you lashes uh, for teaching, for proclaiming the gospel, you can go out there and say anything you want. A lot of bad things might happen. No one's going to beat you for it. I don't think. Don't don't test me on that. Um, But what we proclaim really is a threat to the culture we live in. It's been said today that that Christians in the United States are cognitive minorities. Uh, What that means is that the way that we think about the world is the minority viewpoint at this point. Our views about sexuality, about marriage, about the depravity of man, about uh, the resurrection of Christ, about life after death, unborn children, the creation of the world, morals in general, any number of these things, our views on these are are very different. Uh, To put it another way, our biblically informed ideas that we believe are now the minority view being held. um, Which raises a question for us. How prepared am I, how prepared are you, to suffer joyfully for the sake of the gospel? And if we're realistic, we're not incredibly ready for it. Um, Part of that's not really our fault, because most of us have suffered very little. It's not to say we haven't suffered, but compared to what we see the church doing in history, we've suffered very little. Um, and so it's not really easy for us to train that way, right? Uh, in fact, it, it'd be absolutely crazy if you caused your own suffering just so you could train. And, and I mean like diagnosably crazy. Um, there are, however, a few things that we can do to prepare for this. First, first we can view suffering from God's perspective. We get an understanding of it. Uh, 1 Peter 4.16, there we read, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. And then Matthew 5.11, we read something similar. It says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. See, sometimes obeying God feels terrible. I know that sounds weird at first. Um, Because on some level, every one of us is a people pleaser. And when our biblical convictions disappoint somebody, um, those who we share them with, that can hurt. Uh, And and I mention that because we've got to remember to find our our joy in God and and not just the fickle opinions of of people who do not acknowledge that Christ is on the throne. Uh, Another way we can prepare for suffering is... um, for our, in our faith, or, or suffering or for our faith, rather, is by the way that we handle suffering in, in general, other forms of suffering that God does bring into our lives. We, we learn to trust God because he's God, because he's proven his love, and, and to believe that he loves us even when we are in pain. Uh, a few months ago, I, I read a story in Sports Illustrated. Most of the stories I read are incredibly stupid. This one was really interesting. Um was a college soccer coach. He's not a particularly great coach, but his story is in here because he grew up in uh, Liberia. And his name is David, and he tells a story that when he was a young boy in Liberia, uh, there's a civil war going on, and he watched his own father get get murdered right in front of him, right on the foots of his house, or doorsteps of his house. And and the author of the article is just shocked at this. He's shocked at how strong his faith in Jesus and and God in general was after all this suffering as as his childhood. And you can tell from these questions, he's almost baiting them like, You know, how can you believe God is good in these moments? And David's response was that he thinks of it as a challenge from God. He refers to his sufferings as as biblical trials, and he even says that they're fuel for his faith. Uh, He says of his sufferings, this is a quote from him, he says, it's like a stone in a slingshot. You get pulled back, but that's what moves you forward. And, And just this image of, you know, the suffering actually progresses forward. He's pointing that... Uh, His point is that his sufferings taught him that the satisfaction was was in God. And and, and because of his sufferings, that was the only place in those moments that he could find his satisfaction. Uh, And so he's thankful for them. Uh, We learn in our text here today that uh, we will not be prepared to take the gospel to the world until we are prepared to suffer unjustly. We do not handle unjust very well. Um, and and all that to say, this text is not ultimately about injustices. It's not about fixing them. It's not even about enduring them. Uh, what this text shows us is, is really helpful for when we see injustices because it, it shows us, and, and history proves this as well, that the great plan of redemption which God has in progress absolutely will go on. It is not stoppable. I guess I could say it's unstoppable. Um, God's word is the means by which God is bringing men and women and children into the kingdom and and history again history has shown that people in many eras and many nations from different backgrounds have tried to put a stop to it and it has not worked the gospel continues to spread every attempt has failed sure some people come to faith others think it's absolutely ridiculous but uh, there has always been and will always be a presence of God's people in the world and so we've got to understand that, that Christianity is a conviction that we hold regarding who Christ is. That he's our divine Savior. That his righteousness is for us. That he is our, our loving king. And, and this conviction is something that we share so that others too may, have, may know the significance of who Jesus is as well. That's how we love God by actively sharing. That's how we love our neighbor. Uh, in verse 41, these these very strange apostles are rejoicing uh, because they have been counted worthy to suffer. Uh, for the dishonor in Jesus' name, I can honestly say I have never experienced that in my life. I'd love to, I think. Um, <clears throat> and it's not the dishonor that they're rejoicing. And it's not like, hey, we were dishonored. Although, um, it's rather that dishonor is, a, dishonor is a result of being faithful to Jesus. They have faced this trial where the temptation is to, is to deny Christ, is to walk away, is to take it safe, Uh, where they could have given up, but God has endured them through this round of suffering, and they find it an honor to be connected to the name of Jesus, who is their Lord. Uh, We then learn that uh, this scary moment absolutely does not stop them. They carry on being a witness, and the Holy Spirit carries on being a witness and keeps giving faith to people. And in the very first verse of the next chapter, we see that they continue to grow. Uh, Sinners keep getting saved because Christians keep sharing the word of God. Uh, even when it's a, a risk of their own life. And, and so let me bottom line this one for you just a bit. Uh, this text teaches us that sometimes God's people suffer, and it's not always discipline. It's not always a result of something you did. And so we've got to understand that, that suffering is always painful. It's always difficult. But it's not always bad. Now, if you're faith in Christ, I want to end by asking you just one simple question because it'll, it'll help you in every aspect of life. It's a simple question, a, a question to help you through suffering in general um, and through suffering in the name of Christ. The question is this, when does God love you? When does God love you? And the only right answer for the children of God is all the time. Does God love you when things are going great? Yes, God loves you. Does God love you when you are in the midst of suffering of various kinds? Absolutely. Because God always loves you. Let's pray. God, make us to know you love us even when we face struggles. Make us to know you love us even when we fail to Live in the way that you call us to. Make us to know that you love us so that we would not hide from you, we would not run from you, but rather that we would run to you in our times of suffering. Lord, make us bold to speak your word and may we rejoice when we are insulted because of your name. Just help us to care most what you think about us. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen.